Right, hello, welcome to the latest episode of the Big Football Podcast. Um, hosting as always, my name's Dan, and I'm joined this evening by Paul. Good evening, Dan. And Calm. Hello, good evening. G- gentlemen, how are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah, can't complain, Dan. We're going to crack on a repair significantly quicker than the counting in Nevada this week. Um, <laughs> we've got a lot to discuss. It's been another busy weekend of football. Um as we all know, I've not got a lot of time for international football when it's not tournaments. I've got no time at all for international football in the height of a global pandemic, which is what we are in at the moment. Um, but the season now has a natural pause. Um, some players will get a couple of weeks off, which is much needed given the uh, congestion at the moment of fixtures. And others will be dragged all and sundry around Europe, South America and the world and get no rest at all, which is a constant thorn in the big club side. But as we have this natural pause now, I was wondering who you thought was probably happy to see the break and, and teams who, who were like, well, we, we could do it going on, we're doing okay, let's let's play on. Yeah, so I think I've got a, I've got a couple who will be glad of the break, Dan, and maybe we, we start there. I think one is Leeds United. Who, who obviously got off to a really good start and then have kind of hit the buffers the last couple of weeks and, and having watched bits of both of those games have just looked a little bit like the the exertions of the, the first few weeks and maybe caught up with them a little bit. I know they paid, played an incredible um, tempo in the championship every week last season, but it's different trying to sustain that tempo week in, week out in the, in the Premier League, I think. And I, I do just wonder if, you know, Leeds are one of those clubs where the players need need to take a little bit of a um, of a breath. I think uh, I think my own club again. I didn't watch yesterday because for the third week in a row, Arsenal managed to clash with the NFL, and uh, and for the second week out of three, it was a fourteen ninety five game and I didn't pay it. But certainly at the moment, Arsenal's home form's a real problem. The performances at home in all four games have, have not really been good enough. Um, and I think that they need a, a bit of a time to sort of work out exactly what they're trying to do at home. Uh, you know, I've I've said it numerous times on this podcast already, Dan. I think Arsenal are almost better at the moment when there isn't the expectation on them to force the pace in a game. Um, and I think they struggled again yesterday from the bits I've I've seen and heard to to sort of force the pace against Villa and you know were were deservedly beaten. Um, so so there's a couple there who I think are probably. Glad of the break. You might throw Everton in that mix as well, similar to Leeds, I think, in that they, they've had a good start and then um, just hit the buffers a little bit the last couple of weeks and maybe um, a chance to get one or two players back. I know Richarlison's suspension's over, but but they've been carrying a few injuries, haven't they, with, with Hammers and, and others to get a few people back in into um, tip-top shape and get them back in the side and and try and get back to that structure they had at the start of the season. Uh, they might be another one who are who are glad of the break. I'll I'll let Khan do the positive um, teams. I'll I'll just be Mister Negative in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair enough. Well, I mean, just 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 quickly on the on the sort of negative teams, I and mean, we don't need to talk about them too much because we have covered them. But 
surely Burnley and Sheffield United have to be glad they don't have to play Premier League games for a few days because they are in dire straits. And I think the reason I sort of mentioned them above, say, Fulham and West Brom, you know, the newly promoted teams, is I think they they will have expected a tough tough ride as, as as you know as we've covered whereas you know Burnley and Sheffield United obviously must be thinking now you know this is a relegation dogfight that they perhaps weren't necessarily expecting um you know Sheffield United have got a big case of the old second season syndrome um still on a solitary point Burnley not much better um you know they need to figure out they need to find a plan basically otherwise they're, they're really going to be in you know, in the mock. So I think those would probably be the only other ones I'd I'd really call out. I think it's a great shout to mention uh, Leeds uh, as well there, Paul, um, who, like you say, have, have, have dropped down now into the sort of comfortably in the bottom half. Um, so, yeah, I think they'll probably be glad of a bit of a rest. Um, I'm also not sure how many of their players necessarily play in, you know, in the international break as well. So it is because the other thing is obviously there's, there's having the break, but then if you haven't got the players around, it's not, as you said, Dan, it's not really a break, but I think for the clubs that perhaps aren't sort of necessarily littered with too many international players. And of course, you know, a lot of Premier League sides these days, you know, do have a fair few, but if uh, maybe, you know, if if the managers and the coaching staff are able to retain a decent chunk of the squad around, then they can actually get to work. Um, or, or rest players as they see fit, you know, depending on what's needed, and it gives you a bit of time. Uh, of course, if all, if you know ninety percent of your squad's away on duty, then you don't really have you don't really have much chance anyway, and it's not really a break because if anything, they've travelled around the world. So at least perhaps the, the the clubs down the bottom end, you know, by by nature of that, probably do have a few more who will be sticking around and perhaps give them a chance to to work on some things. Because um, yeah, clearly there's there's work to do for those, particularly those those bottom couple of clubs. Um, but to focus on on the, on the positives, because we're all about positivity on this podcast, as I'm sure everyone knows, um, I, I suppose you have to start at the, at the at the top of the tree and say, well, you know, what a start for Leicester City, really. Um, you know, t- they they all just want to keep keep playing matches, I'm sure, because they they seem to just keep winning um, and to be you know to be top after eight games at this stage, um, you know, before an international break in, in November, uh, you know, I don't think many Leicester fans would have necessarily expected that. I mean, I know they had a good start last season and obviously they faded away and, and sort of missed out on that top four. So remains to be seen whether we see a repeat of that, but, um, and, you know, we know Rogers teams can be a bit boom and bust. So where is this, is this the boom before the inevitable bust time will tell, but equally no one's going to complain about the team being top of the table, are they? So um, I'm sure they'll be delighted. Um, equally, I did mention them, I think briefly last week, Tottenham as well, you know, still up there, ground out, a, a, you know, a, a goal at the end against West Brom. Um, we might have thought they were good for a point um, in that game. So again, it's, a, you know, perhaps a classic Mourinho away, you know, grind out the grind out the, the results as we've seen them do so many times so that, you know, they seem cap- they seem a team that's capable of sticking lots of goal, goals past, past teams when they've got the chance. But then also, you know, there is that resilience um, and a slightly more pragmatic approach as well. So it'll be interesting to see now that they've got, you know, Bales started for them first game against West Brom, how they get on now with that that front three of, you know, Bale, Kane and Son. Let's face it, that looks pretty good. Um, you know, we all know what those players are capable of. So it'll be very interesting to see, I think, how they pick up after the break, assuming those players remain fit and available to them. Um, and I think the, the 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 other probably big one is is of course Southampton, um, who I think we spoke about last week 
and who have you know enjoying a, you know a great start. Obviously, Ings is out for a bit, but fortunately not as, as serious perhaps as we'd um, you know as we'd initially thought, uh, given his history with with knee injuries. Um, looks like he'll be back in a few weeks' time, but even without him, they still still look really good. Um, and we know they've got other options on that side, and they're, they're playing some good stuff. And yeah, again, to be to be fourth after eight games, I think <laughs> I'm pretty sure most Southampton fans would have bitten your hand off for that one. Um, so they're they're probably the the call outs. I think the the only other honor, honourable mention, just maybe shout out for Crystal Palace as well, um, who are sort of sneaking into the top half, and you know a, a really good win at the weekend and. You know, they, they seem to be playing with a lot of confidence and perhaps a lot more positivity than people would normally associate with uh, with, with with that Palace side. And all of a sudden, a team that kind of looked like, you know, maybe a little bit uh, devoid of creativity, you know, aside from, from Wilfred Zaha, now all of a sudden look like they've got, you know, quite a few options um, and seem to be playing some really good stuff. So I think just give them a, a bit of a, a bit of a shout out as well. Um yeah, I don't know if again, Paul Dan, if you've got any anyone else you want to mention either on the the positive or the negative scale. The the only one I'd add on the positive, Con, is is I think um, so. I think it, it is a negative for Chelsea that the break comes now because I think they look as though they've just mm. about figured out their shape and their structure. We talked a bit in the early weeks about them not really knowing their best eleven. Seems to me that Frank sort of started to get a handle on how that how that all fits together now and on the new players they, they brought in over the summer. And I think the last sort of fortnight, Chelsea have looked sort of ominously good in, in places. Um, and they'll probably be one of them teams who would have preferred the sort of momentum to keep rolling and, and you know, don't don't love the break in fixtures. I think they've also got a slightly harder run coming up. I, you know, they've, mm. other than, I know they played away at Manchester United and they, they played at home to Liverpool early on, but you look at the fixtures Chelsea have had to start the season and they're not a bad set of fixtures. Um, I think they've got a slightly tougher period uh, between now and sort of Christmas time. And I, I think when you're rolling, you always just want to roll that momentum, don't you, into the next game. And, and they'll probably be one who, who wish the break hadn't quite come at this point. Yeah, no, I, I think it, it, it's a good shout, actually. And I was sort of thinking about them earlier in, in the sense that, you know, they came under a bit of stick at the start of the season because they sort of made, you know, they, they quote-unquote won the transfer window by signing, uh, you know, these sort of very coveted, young players from around Europe and the first few weeks, you know, clearly it wasn't quite sure, Fra- you know, Frank was sort of in the sweet shop, but he didn't really know what he was buying kind of thing. And he, it, it did take a bit of time to settle, but, but you're right. The last couple of weeks they have, they have sorted, seem to have sorted it out and they've, uh, they're a bit tighter at the back. Um, I think I heard that they're undefeated in 10 in all competitions. Um, I think I heard over some of the punditry at the weekend. Uh, I'm not sure if that's, if that's right, but, but yeah, either way, they're definitely in, um, they're definitely in good form. And yeah, you're right. Probably a, a sort of an elongated break is probably not what they want to sustain that momentum. Um, I've, I've realised actually, sorry, the, the other team I, I meant to call out is, is of course, Aston Villa, um, who are a strange one in the sense that obviously they had that results, you know, against against Liverpool, which is, of course, the big sort of a headline thing. And then, and then I think they beat Leicester, but then they lost two after that, before the weekend. And I, I kind of thought that that was them tailing off a little bit. Uh, but then, and I don't mean to rub salt into the wounds, <laughs> I promise. But uh, then obviously they put in that, you know, I didn't see the game yesterday for the similar reasons, not not NFL-based, but not not uh, pay-per-view-based. Um, so I've only seen the highlights, but it does sound as though it was an excellent performance from them. And again, let's face it, right, they literally survived by the skin of their teeth last season. Um, so to be sixth, uh, so, you know, uh, 
at this stage they'll they'll of course be be absolutely delighted with that and the other thing i was having a little look before because you know i do like to do some preparation for this podcast and they they have an extremely kind run of fixtures now um i had a look and they they in terms of like the big clubs they don't play they play chelsea on the 28th so in that sort of between boxing day and new year's day and between now and then their next sort of six games are just against you know mid-table clubs, so they have a a really good chance of of actually putting together some good good results against those um, against those teams if they can sustain their form. So um, again, I'm sure after last season they'll just be happy to frankly just to stay up in all honesty. But um, yeah, it does given that this is a bit of a obviously a strange season for so many reasons we've already covered. It's almost them and then well actually it's a bit of a free hit. So, you know, why not go for it? You know, you've had a great start. So I think that they'll they'll be a club that'll be looking to to just kick on when, you know, when when the international breaks over. Because like I say, they've got a good set of fixtures there that with the form they've been in, you know, they can really sort of, you know, attack them and, you know, potentially really sort of try and try and potentially even push for a you know, sort of top half or, or, or you know, might might end up being a mid-table finish, but certainly don't expect to be seeing them in a relegation battle this season uh, based on what they've shown us so far. Like, I was going to pop in about Villa because it, they, they seem to like, be a little bit difficult to call, but um, they would probably be happy enough to see a break because I, 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 unless I'm mistaken, I don't believe they have a great deal of internationals, so they will have an actual rest. Um, I wish... It's weird because I, I wish that Liverpool could carry on playing because we're a momentum team. We've built up a bit of momentum, got several wins on the Royal Belt, um, good result yesterday. But at the same time, we could do with a few weeks off to get some players back who were injured. Obviously, there's several of them who are not close, but we've, we've got a couple. I mean, hopefully Trent is going to fall into a couple of weeks. So I'm kind of like, I wish we could play on, but at the same time, it's difficult to call because we've got so many injuries. But yeah, it's been um, an interesting start to the season. It's very difficult to predict because everything's so uncertain. There's no fans and COVID has had a, a big effect on the league table. It will probably end up balancing itself out come May, but I, I don't think that's as certain a thing as it has been in, in years gone by. Um, speaking of unusual seasons, um, we ended last season with the ability to make five substitutions. Um, we were the only major league in Europe to vote against that in the coming season. I thought it was an embarrassment of a decision at the time. Um, given the number of injuries that teams are now sustaining, I think it's an unforgivable decision. And players are falling down injured left, right and centre because West Ham don't want more substitutions. Um, I'm not just singling out West Ham there, but Karen Brady is kind of at the front of the queue for null and void shouts or self-protectionism shouts, and I make no apologies for for that. I am concerned that we are going to get into unprecedented levels of injuries at this rate. Not just because it's happening to Liverpool, it's been happening to every team. Every team is having problems with injuries. It's an absolutely stupid decision. I don't care how protectionist it is, it's really, really short-sighted. Um, both Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola yesterday called it out as a reason that players are getting injured. In fact, um, Pep Guardiola referred to Trent Alexander-Arnold as Alexander Trent-Arnold, which particularly amused me. Um, it's about the only thing amusing, though, uh, about this whole thing. I am absolutely sick to death 
of short-sighted decisions like this. I know that some players, sorry, some clubs have got a big advantage in terms of squad size and who they can get out there, but you can make changes to the rule which make sure that you're not at a disadvantage. Make sure that two of those substitutes have to be under 21, and in that case, teams like West Ham and Crystal Palace can get their academy players out there. If you've got a player who's half-promising in the academy, you can give them 20 minutes of a Premier League football match. I am absolutely sick to the back teeth of short-sighted votes like this, and I hope that it goes to another vote ASAP. This isn't just a Liverpool fan talking, this is a football fan talking. Stop putting players at risk. So I think, uh, I agree with a lot of that, Dan. I certainly think we should stop putting players at risk. I've said numerous times, I think we're playing too many football, uh, too many football matches in too short a space of time and expecting too much of the players. Um, the, the way they're running the season where we've basically caught up the fact that we started a month late by, you know, Christmas time or, or near enough Christmas time seems to me to just be a recipe for disaster and a recipe for injuries. And it's no surprise injuries are up. It's no surprise we're seeing players um, uh, get injured more frequently. Not only are they playing a huge amount of football in a hugely truncated period of time, they've had a substandard break over the summer. In the sense that they've only had, um, you know, three weeks off in some cases, three weeks between the end of a Premier League season and the start of, of a new one, which will be in the end of a European season and the start of a new Premier League season, which is just crazy. Um, they've also not had a proper pre-season where a lot of that strength and conditioning work is about training the muscles and training the joints to be able to deal with the rigours of a, of a full Premier League season that, that's in front of them. So we've definitely got a problem here. Um, I, I think, you know, the cause, let me be clear that the cause of the injuries is too much football. It's not the lack of the ability to make substitutions. It's because of too much football. Um on the substitution thing, I do have some sympathy with the lesser clubs. We've already talked about, uh, you know, the fact that there was a game earlier in the season where Burnley had the 11 who started and then two senior fullbacks and then a load of academy kids on the bench. Now, when you put that up against Manchester City or Liverpool or Arsenal or Manchester United or any of the big clubs, you know, the, the disadvantage that Burnley already has at the start of the game from having poorer players than the opposition is is doubled when, when you're saying there's five free shots. I think... You know, your idea, Dan, about restricting it to, to you know, requiring there to be uh, under 21 players um, within your five substitutions is, is interesting. I certainly think we should be extending the benches. I'm actually less persuaded about do we need to have five substitutions. Is I think we need to go back to the situation we had before the end of the sort of last season where you could basically have... 11 players on the bench. Um, now, I think the advantage of that is it, it means you're not stretching the, the load between the same 14 and 15 players all the time. You know, you, you look at, at certain clubs and it's the same three or four who come off the bench every single week. Um, I, I think there is a case for more substitutions. I think they do need to look at it again. Uh, I just... I do worry a little bit that it's making the rich richer and the poor poorer. And, um, you know, a team like Aston Villa yesterday who were at, who were at the Emirates and, you know, were, were 1-0 up halfway through the, the second half um, 
and they're starting to look at their bench and go, well, we haven't got anyone on the bench who's as good as the players we've got on the on the field. Um, whereas in that scenario, if Arsenal can can throw on, a, you know, Pepe, and, and I know they put some of these players on anyway, and it didn't change the result. But if Arsenal can change Pepe and Ceballos and Xhaka and, um, y- you know, three th- th- three is is significant anyway, if they can change five... I, I can see why if I was West Ham or if I was Burnley or if I was Sheffield United, I would vote against it because I don't think it's in the interests of those clubs. Now, is it in the interests of the players? Yes, probably. But again, the players at those clubs aren't playing twice a week because they're not playing in the Champions League every week uh, or, or the Europa League every midweek. Um, it, it's a hard one to balance. I, I think the Premier League has a voting system whereby it's one club, one vote. So you've got to convince... Uh, 50% plus one that it's in their interest and that means you've got to have 11 of the 20 who are willing to go for it I think you might find that easier as the season goes on and fewer of the clubs are looking over their shoulder and thinking well we could be in the relegation mayor with a bad run here uh, you know you look at the clubs like Southampton and Villa who we've just talked about having good starts they may have been a bit reticent for five subs at the start of the season because they're worried about their own skin. Maybe as they get to a position where they feel more comfortable that they're going to stay up, they become a little bit less resistant to it. It wouldn't surprise me if we do change halfway through a season. I'm not sure that's a great thing. I think the decision should have been taken before the season and then stuck with either way. Yeah, I think yeah, both you both both make very very, very good points around it. And I'm I'm probably slightly more inclined to 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 agree with Paul a little bit, only in so much as it it it's a sort of you know no pun intended like a band aid solution, like it doesn't hit at the root cause of it. Yeah, uh, which we covered last week, of course, which is the too much football theme. You know, that's what they should be looking at. Really, it's it's trying to reduce in the current climate. You know, particularly we talked about tournaments that involve overseas travel and things like that and international football as well you know they're the things they should be looking at i think the the subs thing is a sort of almost like a bit of a gimmicky solution um to try and uh you know to try and appease um, the big clubs who are obviously complaining about it and it is impacting them you know there's no doubt about that and as a as a fan of one of them it's arguably in my interest for it to come in um but yeah i can also completely see why the, the you know the sort of the smaller clubs wouldn't wouldn't vote for it because it it, it, it definitely isn't um in their in their interest either and again bringing in these changes you know midway through a season sort of always a little bit uncomfortable about those sort of rule changes um again given admittedly we are in unprecedented times of course so you could argue that perhaps that's not as much of an issue because if we need to react to things that are happening around us then that that's sort of in the current climate you kind of have to do that a little bit um but uh, yeah I'd, I'd rather see them you know look at uh, a proper solution which is of course not to just exert the players and and involve them in as much travel as they are um because as, as we said before you know it's it's the, the, the money in the game is because of the big clubs and the big players. So sort of making them do the sort of merry-go-round they're doing at the moment is, is, is it goes against the reason that, uh, that there's that sort of money in the game anyway, because if all of a sudden you've got, you know, big clubs where half the big name players are injured, well, that's going to harm your, your advertising revenue or whatever anyway. So it, it, it's sort of, it's counterintuitive to, to sort of flog them to the extent where then, you know, they end up just getting injured because then it harm, it harms your overall product. So I'd rather see them take that sort of lens to it and think, well, hang on a minute, let's think a bit more long term um, and come up with a solution 
that way than just than just introduce something like um you know five substitutions i mean i don't know if because uh, i know we only had it in for a short time last season i don't know if there is anything that proves that it did make for example did it actually make a difference is there anything tangible that says from when we've used it before that it made you know that it actually helped i don't i don't know if it if it did you know anecdotally some people might have um you know might might have thought it improved but did it did it actually make a difference you know i i, I don't know um well, what I will say, Carm, is there was less injuries at the tail end of last season than there mm. are now. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely true, Dan. And and as a means of limiting uh, players' exposure, it, it it definitely worked. I think I think the point Carm makes is the right one. Is it's a sticking plaster to the real problem, and, and actually, shouldn't that focus be on? And I mean, maybe this is too ideal world and it's just never going to happen, but shouldn't have a focus beyond trying to manage the problem and the exposure and the number of games we're asking players to play. And, I, you know, I, I just think the number of games we're trying to stick into this really, really condensed period of time is frankly ludicrous. And, un- and until somebody sort of admits that and is willing to change things to deal with it, I think even if you had five substitutes, I think we would be seeing more injuries than we were at the tail end of last year because of the cumulative effect on players who have been going non-stop every three days since the middle of June with a sort of two-week, three-week break in the middle. And we are now in the middle of November, and that's five months of pretty much every three days playing football. Um, Is it? I think the, the difference as well there is, you know, around the break that, of course, at the end of last season, the players had actually enjoyed <laughs> a very long break. You know, um, I mean, I know they were still training and and whatever, but obviously they'd not been playing competitively for quite a while. So it probably did help a lot of them in terms of there were players who went into that uh, lockdown injured, who came out of it not injured um, and players who who perhaps weren't necessarily injured, but, you know, maybe needed a break or whatever, had that chance to sort of, you know, recharge a bit. So actually, when when it then we came out of it, okay, perhaps questions around match fitness. Um, but equally, yeah, that that might be part of the reason why you know we didn't see as many as many injuries because they were at least uh, whilst they might not have been match sharp, they were at least rested. Um, whereas now they're yeah they're, they're the, almost the opposite. You know that they just uh, they've just been constantly playing games and not had you know not had any sort of break. Um, which can also affect your match fitness because you've just got that that sort of tiredness in you as well from the from the travel and the games. Uh, you know, every sort of two three days if you're a you know if you're to one of the bigger clubs in Europe. Um, I, d- I don't know if either of you saw or, or, or think there's any value in. It. I, I, I think it was Ian Ian Wright on Match of the Day was saying that it, it should be brought in for only between games between two clubs who are in Europe um, to sort of resolve that fairness issue. That uh, that they're allowed to have five subs. I don't I don't know if that's really something that would work in practice, but I think that was his sort of compromise solution. I don't know if you think that might be perhaps a fairer way of doing things um, or not. I mean, I see the point. I don't know whether it would work, but I, I I think I think there should be some effort to try and find some sort of halfway house. And, four, and that's why you know <laughs> four substitutions. Yeah, three and a half. Uh, you get. <laughs> You get a fourth every third game. No, I am. Um, I, I I think. Look, obviously, Dan made a suggestion at the start of the of this discussion. Um, that's another option from from Ian Wright. I, I think 
that there's a balance to be struck here and and it and it is about finding that right balance and um yeah i it, it's a really tricky one to resolve because we are asking players to to do a lot and and they will be getting injured i mean it's just it's just a matter of course i think i think thomas party went off injured yesterday for arsenal and again as you know it, it is the cumulative effect of the amount of football we're asking them to play I think, I mean, this has been a really interesting and enjoyable discussion. One one thing I will say that's not come up yet is during the end of last season, you saw Phil Forden get a fair bit of game time. You saw Curtis Jones get a fair bit of game time. So Eddie and Kessie get a fair bit of game time. Like, what is the, what's to, to say that there's a player waiting in? Sheffield United's academy or West Ham's academy. We all love, know that West Ham love their academy and love to tell mm. us about their academy. What's to say that there's no player waiting to get that to take that extra step to get that first team football under the belt to explode into the development? I think it would be a great. I think having five substitutions is a great opportunity for all academies. And that, that's why I'm so keen to make the kind of compromise of, okay, we don't want to see. Liverpool bring on Wijnaldum, Thiago, Henderson, um, Minamino, and or we'll just say Neko Williams. You know, I, I can understand why teams would say, "Well, that's we can't compete with that." But if you say you can bring on three of those and Leighton Stewart, who's scoring goals for fun in the academy, or Herbie K, I think Herbie K might have left, but you know, like, a, a young midfielder. You know, like, what what is to say that there's not players in academies of team opposed who can make that step. Yeah, no, I, I I do agree with that, Dan, albeit I think again if I was Burnley, I'd argue you've probably got better players in Liverpool's Academy than Burnley sure, have got in theirs. Um but 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 no I, I take the point and, and I think it's similar to the thing that I've said previously about the League Cup in terms of if you're in Europe as far as I'm concerned you should have to play your under twenty threes in the League Cup and it, and and that should be a you know a, a, that would be another way of trying to to, to give those young players, especially at the big clubs, where we do know there are young players whose whose paths can, on occasions, be blocked, and they have to go elsewhere to then come back. You know, I just because it springs to mind watching Everton at the weekend, and and they're talking about Michael Keane, who there's an example, a young player at Manchester United, never got the opportunity there, went to Burnley, built back his career, and and got a move to Everton, and you can, you know, argue about the merits or otherwise of Michael Keane as as an international defender, but but, but the point is there that there are young players whose path gets blocked, who have to go away and then come back. So um, it's definitely worth exploring. I think think there needs to be a... If Liverpool and Manchester City and the other big clubs want to put this back on the table to the Premier League, I think they need to do so with the spirit of compromise in mind. Because I think just saying, let's have the same debate as we had in in July and August, uh, isn't going to be sufficient, I don't think, to persuade the Premier League to go with it. No, no, I think that's fair. I think given... (laughs) Given how the last proposition that the big clubs came up with a few weeks ago, we might need to think about introducing a few sweeteners as well, because I think there's probably a, <laughs> probably haven't helped themselves with the debacle of a few weeks back and that front. Um, all, all I would just say to address Dan's points really quickly, and sorry, I think you were going to jump in there, Dan, but just on the point around blooding youngsters, I mean, of course, that that is a great point, and I, I don't think anyone would not want to see that happen. Um, all, all, all I would say is that. 
managers tend to be creatures of habit. And even if they have the option to bring on other players, they like going with their tried and trusted because ultimately, as we know, it's a results-driven business and you know they'll be nervous about bringing on a kid if they have the option of bringing on a more established player. I think they'll still choose that established player given where we're at in the season. And I think the, the follow-on point to that is, I think perhaps the reason we saw it a bit more at the end of last season is it's easy to bring on a kid in a sort of dead rubber on the beach game in game week 36 than it is in the middle of November of when course. you're in the, the, the thrust of the season. Um, so I don't, yeah, I, I don't know if we'll all of a sudden start seeing everyone throwing in academy kids, you know, left, right and centre. I, I suspect that probably won't happen as much and it'll be, you know, it'll be more the exception than the norm. And I think that's a bit my point as well, Con, that, that actually as you get closer to the end of the season, the number of clubs who are worried about the extra subs reduces because they start to be less worried about their position in the league table, um, yeah. knowing that they're going to survive, and they're more willing to say, yeah, let's have five, and we'll bring you know, we'll bring the, the left winger from the, the under-19s with us. I, I think it definitely does, does have an element of that in the conversation. Yeah, sure. And um, just just breaking news now as we're talking, um, Trent is out for four weeks, which is a lot better than I was expecting, to be honest. But, um, yeah, is that down exclusively to there not being five substitutions? Of course it's not. Has it helped that injury to happen? Of course it is. It's, it's um, all accumulative, as, as you've both said. It's accumulation of a number of factors. Um if we move on, because I could genuinely talk about that all night, um, I'd just like to... It's something we've discussed on the podcast before. Um, well done, Marcus Rashford. Again, gets his big win, gets an, another government climb down. And again, what um, what a, a player and what a man you have at Manchester United, Durkan. Yeah, well, it's, it's 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 sort of almost becoming funny now, isn't it? Sort of waiting for the countdown for the embarrassing U-turn. It's uh, it's <laughs> it's getting a bit silly. It's like you just think, why don't you just agree with it in the first place? It's such a sort of as we covered the other week. You know, it just seems such an obvious thing that pretty much you know ninety nine point nine percent of the country more or less are behind for for such obvious reasons because it seems such a sort of basic you know, human right to a degree to, to have kids be fed. It's like, why put yourselves through the torture of, of the inevitable climb down? So, yeah, it was great news, of course. And, you know, not just obviously for Rashford, but for the kids who are going to get a square meal every day is what it, what it's really about. But, yeah, I mean, fantastic effort for his his persistence um, and also the way that he's he's been so sort of dignified throughout. And like we said, he hasn't he hasn't made it a political battle as such. Um, he's just sort of put his viewpoint forward and let people draw their own conclusions. And yeah, he's conducted himself absolutely superbly. And it was, you know, great to see and not a surprise to see Everton, you know, with uh, the sort of putting his his image up on the screen and, and saying thank you. Um, you know, I think we know, you know, well, you might disagree, Dan, but you know, Everton are generally a class act with things oh, like that. Completely, and, completely, um, they are, yes. You know, just, just great to see that, you know, re- sort of recognition in, in the footballing community as well. Yeah, I, I'd leave all rivalry with Everton on the pitch, off the field. They are, without a shadow of a doubt, probably the the best team in the league for looking after ex-players and, and looking out for the fans and stuff like that. Yeah, um, completely. They're, they're a class act. Um, I mean, I, I think I've said most of what, what needs to be said about, about Marcus Rashford previously. I think he's done a fantastic job. It's not surprising that um, he's he's 
kind of won the argument again on this on this point. Um, and it, you know, it's again testament to the the passion with which he's campaigned on the issue. Um, and uh, you know, he continues to to be a real example of of the the good that football can do when the 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 platform and um, to use the modern parlance that that footballers have is is used in a positive way. Yeah, um, and the the right honourable gentleman for Mansfield could learn a few lessons from that. He's, he's becoming a, he's becoming a bit of a weekly theme, Ben Bradley, on this podcast. As much I was, was going to say, when, be... when are we getting him on? <laughs> He'll be wanting his own slot done. And nearly as much as leak CSOB, who I've have managed to actually not manage mention for a few weeks. Um, yeah, so again, um, Marcus Rashford, I, I salute you. Um, someone who I don't salute, or if I did salute, it would be not be in a positive fashion. Um, Adam Ola-Luckman, you are the Pranic of the week. What was he thinking, gents? What 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 possesses you to do that in the 99th minute of a match when you're 1-0 down? You score a penalty, you just hit it hard into a corner, you score, it's 1-1, you get a draw, which probably be a good result for Fulham. Um, what was he thinking and, and what do you think? Well, I, I tell you what, a 1-1 result would have been better for Fulham than a 1-0 defeat. That's, that's definitely <laughs> that's for certain. Saying, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think Scott Parker's of that view, which is a bit of a shame for Lukman. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm, I think was, the first thing I'd say is, why was he taking it? Well, he wouldn't have been the first name I had down for to, to take a penalty, to be honest. No, nor me. And then, you know, I think Mitrovic was still on the pitch, wasn't he? Uh, I believe so, yes. And obviously you would expect him to... to, to he's a good yeah, it, it just struck me as really odd that um, that Lukman was the first choice to take the penalties. He's only been through the door a matter of, you know, a couple of weeks. He signed right at the end of the window. As far as I'm aware, Mitrovic was still on the pitch. I, I don't think he'd been replaced at that point. Um, I think he, he, he played till the end. So I... Just incredibly frustrating for Fulham. I don't know what he was thinking. You know, the Penenka's one of those penalties, isn't it? It looks great when it comes off. Um, but if you're going to try the Penenka, you need to be really confident in your technique. Because if you fluff a Penenka, um, it looks the most ridiculous penalty of all time. And, and that's what it looked. Uh, you know, it, it was a dreadful effort. And um, he, will, he will get... He, he, he will get a lot of criticism, rightly so. But you've got to feel for the the other players in that Fulham dressing room, who that you know they're already in a tough battle this season. They've gone to to West Ham. They've worked the socks off to try and stay in the game. They've conceded in added time. They probably think, oh, look at all that hard work gone to pot, and then they get a golden opportunity to rescue themselves and get away with a point that they will have felt, not necessarily on the balance of play or the balance of chances or or any of that stuff, but just on their persistence and on their work rate and on how hard they tried that they deserved. And then to see a teammate treated with that sort of... There's just something that looks very casual about it, isn't there, when you take a penalty that way. And uh, if, he, if the goalie dives on the floor and it, it rolls into the net, you look like a hero. Um when that happens, you look like an absolute clown, and uh, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that's what he looked like on on Saturday evening. Yeah, I, I, I did see someone sort of ask the question. You know, would would he have done that if there'd been fans in the ground as well? You know, if if you've got a crowd it's, there, it's a very good point. Do, do, do you maybe think you know if you know? And obviously, they all know that it's being filmed, but it's not. You know, it's obviously not the same. 
and uh, yeah, maybe you feel you can almost get away with it. And you know, whereas when there's thirty thousand people, there is nowhere to hide, um, and it's it's very different. So yeah, but yeah, it was a absolutely dreadful and literally just the last thing that Fulham need right now is someone trying to showboat a penalty when they just need to get some points on the board. So yeah, very disappointing. All, all I will say is. He did look genuinely mortified, and I think he knew exactly what he'd done afterwards. There did seem to be some degree of contrition on on his face in his reaction, but uh, yeah, equally, um, yeah, in, inexcusable really to, to to do that when they just desperately need some points. And as you said, Paul, that was a a golden opportunity to rescue something. Where do you... We talked, didn't we? We we talked when when Van Dijk had the mistake at the start of the season against Leeds, Dan. About we did. Would the player react the same way in a full crowd, or would he just slash, slash that out of play and and you know give away a corner or give away a throw in and, and live for another day? And I wonder a little bit if there's a point there that Carl makes of you know if you're in front of a full house at the Olympic Stadium, do you just run up and smash that as hard as you can in the corner? Uh, a bit like I mean there wasn't there wasn't much graceful about Mo Salah's penalty yesterday, was there? He just ran up to it and absolutely leathered it. I think even if Edison, you know, had got near it, he would have probably taken his hand off him as it as it went into the goal. Well, um, Edison I'm, started I'm, that penalty stood behind the line, like yeah, quite a I'm bit a big, behind the line as well. <laughs> I'm a big fan. My, my granddad, God rest him, always used to say you should never miss a penalty because you can kick it as hard as you want. Um, and there's a, there's a little bit of that, I think, in my in my psyche when it comes to penalty kicks. I'm I'm more of a Stuart Pierce type penalty taker than. Um, than anyone who does the Penenka. Well, what I was going my next question to you both. I mean, we we all, we all have our preferences. As a goalkeeper, I don't like to see penalties hit low in low in the corner. But I was I was going to ask you what what do you two like in a penalty? That's where I like my penalties hard and low. What what about you two? Yeah, definitely hard. I I don't mind someone going high because you know, again, from a goalkeeper's perspective. You, you don't dive to your top corner when you take off for a, for a penalty. You know what I mean? So I don't I don't mind someone going high. It's a bit riskier, obviously, because it brings it brings another way of missing into play. Um, but I generally think you've got to make sure that you strike the ball really purposefully and and strike it powerfully. Um, it looks great when you roll it in a corner and the goalie's dived the other way. But uh, I'm someone who prefers to see someone's giving it a real lash. To be honest. Not like Kev De Bruyne, not like Kev De Bruyne used to do then. Oh, well, I think I said to you on on our on our WhatsApp group, uh, Dan, you, you shouldn't be too harsh on De Bruyne because his penalty did go in just just to the goal at Old Trafford. It was that far <laughs> wide. Um, I mean, that was a dreadful penalty. It wasn't even that close. No, it wasn't. But, you know, I know people will say, "Well, it was only a yard wide," but for a player of his ability. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it again. It did look. I, I don't know if he didn't look like he strike. You know, struck it. I should say that cleanly. Like I don't know if maybe there was a a bit of a, an element of sort of slippage or or whatever. I don't know. But yeah, very very uncharacteristic. But again, when you're it, it, to a certain degree, when you're a player like De Bruyne, you can sort of overlook it because you know it's it's an off day. Whereas with someone like Lukman, you're like you know, come on, what's going on? Um, I think you can almost forgive it more to a certain degree when you know it's someone that's just um, had a you know had a had a bad. You know, whether it's a bad game or a bad penalty or whatever, when it's someone that's given so much of the team, it, I personally, as a fan, it doesn't always yeah. upset me as much. Um, but when it's, like you say, you know, someone like Luckman, who's a new recruit and given a chance to 
you know, really step up and to then sort of let the team down like that. You know, no one's going to accuse De Bruyne of letting Man City down. He's been arguably the best player for two years or whatever, or three years. Um, but yeah, with, with the Lukman situation, very, very different. <laughs> They've had problems, haven't they? Man City have had real problems getting someone... You know, since Sergio stopped being automatic, mm. they've had real problems from the penalty spot. I think Sterling had a go and he missed a couple. Um, Gundogan had a go, didn't he, last season and missed a couple. Uh, I think I think Jesus might have taken one and, and missed as well. So they've had real problems, Man City, finding a consistent um, scorer of penalties, which, again, when you look at the talent that they've got in the side, it yeah. seems ridiculous yeah. that they can't find somebody to smash the ball in from the penalty spot. <laughs> well, if you remember, that it was only a year ago that Man United were having a similar thing between Rashford, Martial and Pogba. It kept rotating until Fernandez joined and became the, the obvious sort of de facto taker. We're having a similar thing where, you know, Rashford had score one, miss one, Martial had have a go, score one, miss one, Pogba had step in, score one, miss one, with his daft run up. Um, you know, and he was he took Fernandez to come in to be like, right, I can actually hold my nerve and just you know, I know he did sort of you know Well, when you get as many penalties as Manchester United do seem <laughs> well, to count. There's plenty practice. plenty yeah. of practice um, to go around. Yeah. In fairness, Dan, nowadays with the with the rules as they are, and with the interpretation as they are on VAR, and with the ability to review things, everyone gets a lot of penalties. Yes, the yeah, the yeah. value of having a good penalty taker, I think, is higher now than it's ever been. Unquestionably, yeah. Did Did you see that thing in? Um, I know I'm sure we need to move on, but there was an article, and it was sort of an article in an interview with Les Ferdinand about about the. the, the I did. It was in the Athletic. It was really good. About how he missed out on the golden boot because he wasn't a penalty taker. Yeah. Uh, but if you added up, I think there were two seasons where if, if, if penalties didn't count, he would have won the golden boot. And they were sort of raising this question of particularly now, given the rise of how many penalties there are, actually, should they count towards golden boots and should it just be goals from open play and it's it's just a interesting interesting uh, discussion but I don't know if we've got time to go, in, to go into well, it well, now well that will result in Harry Kane snatching the ball quite a <laughs> bit more um, I'm going to actually just, just come to back to penalties first of all Cam where were your penalties going um, I, so, always in the corner for me I, th- I think if you can get it high in the corner always look the best agree that's that's risk but low into the corner is good. I think uh, smashing it down the middle, I mean, yeah, they look good, but it doesn't feel like if you're a regular, I think that's great if you're in a penalty shootout, but if you're a regular penalty taker, I don't know if you can just rely on on just smashing it down the middle would, would be my view. Okay. Uh, the, the, the other thing I want to mention about penalties, um, as, as you know, I'm a goalkeeper. I'm not a goalkeeper of any distinction, and I can't, <laughs> I can't take penalties because I can't kick a ball far enough or hard enough, but I, I actually played a game once at uh, Liverpool's Academy, um, it was um, an, an it was the I, th- I think it was the thirtieth anniversary of the um, the Heysel disaster. We had um, a match against Juventus fans. It was organised by a friend of mine who's a Juventus fan. He's Italian, who now works for FIFA. Now he, with the, the, the Juventus fans, were awarded a penalty in this match. It wasn't a penalty, but. Mr. Webb, not not that Mr. Webb, but the referee, Mr. Webb, <laughs> gave, gave, gave the penalty, and. My my friend tried to to do a paneka. I, I was in goal. It was that bad. I dove past it, managed to scramble back to my feet, pushed it against the bar. He then ran for the rebound, hit the rebound against the post, 
I sliced him up in the air because again, I'm, it was that bad. I've just not been able to adjust my body or my mind. And fan, we managed to just scramble it clean, but it was just ridiculous. It was such a bad penalty. It was hilarious. But ha- had I stood I, still, I swallow it. But I, I remember I was past it. I remember the last season of Arsenal's double year in 98. We'd already won the league and we had two games to play. I remember we sent the kids out at Anfield, Dan, and got, and got beat three or four. 4-0. And then, and then we played away at Villa on the last day. And Dwight York, I think it was ended up being his last game for Villa, scored a Penenka. We lost 1-0, scored a Penenka against Seaman, where Seaman dived, realised the ball was still sort of floating aimlessly in the air, got back up and nearly saved it diving the other way. Um, so, yeah, you do, need to be, you do need to be careful. I mean, in them days, it was still a rarity. It's become much more of a thing now, hasn't it? Uh, you know, certainly in penalty shootouts, you see quite a lot. But I, but I think I agree with what, with what Khan said. I think you get away a bit more with down the middle in a penalty shootout. Because I think goalkeepers tend to sell out more in penalty shootout situations than they do in just an ordinary penalty in in the course of a game. Uh, so actually, in a penalty shootout, uh, sort of a, a penenka or, or just a you know a, a smash down the middle can be a more effective technique than maybe it is, you know, just on a on a wet Wednesday at Stoke. You you might remember remember Paul. You've probably not seen me face too many penalties, but the ones I have. I dive late. I always dive late because if it's a bad penalty, the odds on me saving it are quite high. If it's a good penalty, I'm not getting to it. But in my mind, my logic is I probably wouldn't have got to a good penalty anyway. Well, you know who used to uh, extol that logic, Dan? And we've we've mentioned him once on this podcast already in the few weeks we've been back up and running. It's Mark Crossley, um, but that's not, I, I, that's not who you mean. But Mark no, 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 no. This was the... This was the Big Ron logic. Back on Champions League Tuesdays on ITV, <laughs> Big Ron was very big whenever it was a penalty on the fact he didn't think the goalie should dive until as late as possible. He, he thought, very much the same logic as you've just used, Dan. He always thought, if he's in the corner, you're not saving it anyway. Make sure that you save anything that he mishits, you know, or doesn't quite get in the corner. Um, and you do that by sort of diving late and, and reacting, uh, which is one of the reasons I think hit it hard. Because even if you if you haven't quite got it in the corner, if you've struck it well enough, it's got to be some dive to get there quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I like hard hit penalties, but it always makes me think of the ones that have gone orbital. Charlie Adam, Sergio Ramos, and the worst because it, it hit the crossbar and kept on rising. Yap Stam in the semi-finals of Euro two thousand. When the ball, Chris Waddle, Chris Waddle, the ones where the ball is still rising now. I'd I love to see hard hit penalties, but that's the risk you always have. Yeah, Baggio, of course, Roberto uh, who, Baggio. Yeah, yes, Baggio. And can I just point out, by the way, that that is the only similarity between me and Big Ron. We, <laughs> we like our goalkeepers. Always worth players. clarifying. To yes. be fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was there at the uh, city ground the day to go over as Forest manager uh, against Arsenal and went and sat in the wrong dugout. Do you know what? It's so weird. I was thinking about that the other day. I don't know why that just popped into my head. I've I, I no idea what it was, but yeah, I was. <laughs> I just remember <laughs> us. I think I remember us chuckling about it back in the day. Yeah, yeah. The, the Camp had been injured and was sort of <laughs> I, I was on the bench because he was on his way back from injury. And the famous line is, Big Ron sits down on the bench. He says, I looked to the side of me. I thought, we've got a few handy players here. We shouldn't be bottom of the league. 
to 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 be fair to to, um, to Nottingham Forest fans, I'm pretty sure that they wish he would spend more time in the away dugout than he did the home one in that season. That was the yeah. That was the eight one, wasn't it, Manchester United? It was the eight one season. Yeah, I don't think he even finished the season. Did he took over at about end of January or thereabouts, and and That's didn't even finish out season. the season. David, yeah. David Pleat, one of the few caretaker managers who the fans want his head by the end of his spell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, that was the end of Big Ron's career, wasn't it? When he, he had just become the kind of gun for hire with whoever was in the relegation zone at Christmas. Yes, yeah. yeah he had had a pretty decent managerial career, but um, yeah, he, he long belonged on the Champions League on Tuesdays. And of course, by the time, at the end of his time, though, he didn't belong on anything modern. No, he he rather disgraced himself at the end, yes. which is a shame. Yeah, it, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, whilst I could go on about penalties, <laughs> especially the, the the orbital ones that I love so much. Um, any other business? Uh, certainly, there was some interesting cup results. Uh, not not very interesting for Port Vale, who I'm sure were mortified at getting knocked out by Kingsland. Yeah, I. I did have a little chuckle to myself at that one. Um, I, I think there were some interesting cup results. Marine had a fantastic result from from your neck of the woods, yes, Dan, or did, you yeah. know that part of the world. Uh, yeah, a great result for them, and, and they've always been a good non-league club. Marine, I remember back to the the mid nineties and the Northern Premier League, and they were always a, a strong outfit. And you know, it was good to see them uh, have their day in the sun. I also think, um, you, you know. Reflecting on the championship this weekend again, Dan, and I know I mentioned them earlier in the season, which is is the the Derby County situation. I think they're now bottom of the championship, um, or they're certainly in the bottom three, uh, and they're on a really bad run. I think they are bottom. Um, Sheffield Wednesday above them on goal difference. Uh, they've had one win from eleven games. I just don't know how much longer they can they can go without making a move. Uh, and I still think the reason he bears watching as sort of general interest to football fans is I think the man most likely to take over is one Wayne Rooney. So um, I think it's a situation that definitely bears watching. On the flip side, and, and having had a little chuckle at Port Vale, um, it doesn't give me any great pleasure to say what a fantastic result it was for Stoke at the weekend, um, going and winning 3-0 at, at Reading, who, who remained despite that, despite that defeat top of the championship. Uh, they've had a bit of a they, wobble, they, haven't they? they? They've had a bit of a wobble, Reading. I think I think they've lost three of the last four, something like that. Whereas Stoker have had a really solid start. I think you'd, if you've offered them, I think they're seventh or eighth in the league, and you know they've had a decent run and probably started the season with sort of aspirations of being in the playoff mix. And look as though if they can keep this sort of form going, they may well be in that sort of position where they're at least challenging for a top six spot and, and, and Stoke need that because it's been a bit of a mess since they dropped out of the Premier League in all honesty. Um, Michael O'Neill has to... the feeling though that he could be the one to, to, to set them back on an even keel and play off runs. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it didn't immediately click when he got there last year, but he did enough to keep them up. And now he has an opportunity this season, I think, to kick on. And uh, it's it's tough, that top of the championship, though. You look at it, the three who came down last year, Watford, Norwich, Bournemouth, I think they're second, third and fourth. 
Swansea are up there who've you know only been down a couple of seasons. Middlesbrough are up there who've obviously been a, a bit of a yo-yo club. Stoke, as we've just mentioned. But there are a lot of very recent Premier League clubs congregating near the top of that table. Um, and it promises to be, a, as it always is in the Championship, a really, really interesting season. Khan, have you got anything else you want to raise? Um, not too much. Just uh, obviously, just to echo, as we mentioned, I think yesterday, the the sigh of relief that that Rangers must have had to to squeak the the result they <laughs> oh. had. Just the uh, I, I did it finish in single figures. I'm I'm not sure, Eight. Um, Eight but it won't won't have done the goal difference any harm. Let's put it that way. Um, but I noticed they seem to be quite comfortably. Uh, I know we touched on them a few weeks back after the old firm game. I'm sure there's another one next week because they play each other about 27 times. But uh, yeah, they seem to be uh, seem to be on a bit of a bit of a roll and on a mission to stop uh, stop Celtic getting the uh, the magic the magic number 10. Yeah, the, the defense is really really. The, I mean, I know goals. No, they don't concede goals, and when you score eight, that's a, that's a winning formula. Um, Was Morelos on the bench as well? I think he was. Wasn't yeah, he? yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic result for Rangers. They're doing really well. It might be something we come back to in that the situation on the other side of Glasgow is just worth keeping an eye on. There's been a couple of um, polls run among supporters and websites and local newspapers, etc., that have suggested that they'd like to move on from Neil Lennon. I think that's really harsh. I do. I mean, they've had a bad week. Of course they have. But the job Neil Lennon's done since since taking over from Brendan Rodgers in, in less than ideal circumstances has been a really good job. And, um, you know, uh, at the moment, you, you would look at Rangers and say they look the stronger of the two outfits. Uh, and if if Neil Lennon ends up being the guy who, who is in charge at the point that the streak breaks, then it will do his legacy with, with Celtic fans some harm, you would think. But I, I think it just bears watching. He's starting to come under pressure. I'm not sure it's entirely justified. But as we talked about before the old firm with, with Gerard and what he needs to do this season, that is a situation in Glasgow. It is a pressure cooker. And performances that in other cities would be okay if you're Celtic and you're behind Rangers or you're Rangers and you're behind Celtic it's not okay and um and and, and Gerard's already felt it at different times since he's been at Rangers Neil Lennon's going through it at the moment um and it just bears watching it, it was a good result for, for Celtic this weekend but they need to really now put a run of results together and put some pressure on Rangers we have seen you know Rangers were top at Christmas last year and sort of fell apart in the second half of the season. So um, a lot still to play for in the Scottish Premiership. But the uh, the pressure is definitely... Uh, I think it was... It, Arsene Wenger used to say that, it, that the media in England almost always needed one of the big four or five teams to be in crisis. Well, in Scotland, there's only two big teams and one of them always has to be in crisis and it's whichever one isn't top of the league. <laughs> that's, just, that's just the way Glasgow works. So, um, so worth keeping an eye on, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I I keep my eye out for Rangers results. When it comes down to who who of them I prefer, I don't. If I have to prefer a Scottish team, it's Dundee, because that's where my my, my uncle who's Scottish, that's where he's from, that's who he supports. So that's the, the they're the team I watch out for the most in Scotland. In terms of Rangers, I obviously have an interest in Stephen Gerrard because when Jurgen Klopp comes to leave Liverpool, you, Stephen Gerrard, even if he's the manager of Aberystwyth. Will be linked. <laughs> will, will be linked with a Liverpool job because that's just how it works. That's just what will happen. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's got the feeling, hasn't it, that, that you know, the Alan Shearer feel that at some point it's inevitable in some way, shape, or form he will have a period. Um, you can only hope it's more better than, than Alan Shearer's. <laughs> I, I remember. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't have a, a great deal of time, or not time for Newcastle. Newcastle are just a club to me. I, I don't hate them. I don't. Um, like particularly like them either they're just there and I'll, I'll never forget Liverpool fans sing, serenading Alan Shearer with the match of the day theme as uh, we went three 0 up as, and, and Newcastle's time in the Premier League were uh, was coming to an end but with with that being said I I would ra- rather have Newcastle in the Premier League than not to say the least um I think that brings us nicely to the to the end of proceedings. Um, Paul, you're going on international duty next week. You're not going to be playing. You're just going to be protecting Jack Grealish from Gareth Southgate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think I'll be around next week. I've got, I've got lots of stuff on work, work wise. So I'll probably miss the international podcast. But I will listen with interest, uh, chaps. And um, you know, if I get a call up, it, it, it means that Gareth needs somebody to play uh, so that he doesn't have to pick Jack. Um, well, I'm, I'm absolutely certain though that maybe. Amount will get at least, uh, you know, one ninety-minute performance in the in the game. Well, if, if we listen to Roy Keane, I don't think I don't I don't think Kyle Walker should be playing for England. So <laughs> you, you might have a chance at playing in the, the, that right-sided centre half. <laughs> Yeah, well, indeed. I mean, it, it it was a bit of a silly tackle, in fairness to Roy Keane, whether he whether he went over the top on his criticism or not. Yeah, I, I think we can probably save pundit. I'm, I'm not a massive fan of Roy Keane as a person, player, manager, or pundit, but uh, <laughs> I, I think we, I think we deserve. To give Other that. than that, though, he's okay. Other than that, he's, 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 he's good at walking dogs. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, I think we, we, we were going to talk about punditry, but we we, we don't have time. I, I think we we deserve to give that one a good a good going over. Um, so we'll we'll save that topic for a, a couple of weeks. Uh, we are going to be having a couple of guests coming up on the Big Football Podcast in the next um, few weeks. Actually, we're going to be joined next week by Matt Passant, who is um, a Villa fan and a goalkeeper coach. Um, so I will be. Testing my theory about diving late for penalties on him. See what he thinks. See what the experts think. And um, I think we're going to be doing a four podcast as a four in a few weeks because we're going to be getting joined again by um, by Stu Monty, who wants to talk about um, stats. And the only stat I care about particularly is the full time score. Uh, I'm not into my XG or my P45 or my <laughs> XYZ. Um, and I'm hoping that you two. Um, we'll we'll talk me into it. I look forward to it, Dan. Yeah, that's that's in a few weeks. So I'd like to thank you all for listening. Um, Paul Khan, really good fun podcast. I enjoyed that as always. Um, and yeah, I, I don't hate West Ham that much. Um, I just feel very strongly that we're getting our all our lads, not just Liverpool, uh, playing too much football at the moment. So that's it for us. We will be we we, we don't skive off on international duty. We will be back. Well, not all of us do, Paul. <laughs> yeah. Um, so thank you very much for your time. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you all next week.